Every beginning has a beginning, and every beginning but this one came after an ending. But this first beginning came after the unending one. You see, it wasn't from nothing that everything came but a loving creator who has a name. He's an artist. A musician of some fame began the song of time with the Big Bang. Now it might have begun with a gentle hum, but I imagine it was more like the boom of a bass drum. God. He carves the edges of the mountains, draws the borders of the seas, sculpts... To see the spirit of God in the, in the natural world, in the entangled bank, makes the natural world a place of encounter with God. It makes it a place where God is present, where one can speak with God, hear God's word. And I would say anybody who has had an experience of God in nature would know this, and I'm just putting language to that. Him, he, who has no start and no finish, fills all space and time without limits, God. Existing in perfect communion, Father, Son, and Spirit, like a three-part band playing the music of heaven, but no human could hear it. Now, if you disagree with the three-in-one, I won't fuss. But when God started creating, he said, let us. Let us make man in our image. So he brought together some dust and breathed into it life. Saw man wasn't good alone, so he fashioned him a wife. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Can I Say This at Church podcast. I'm your host, Seth. Today I had the honor of discussing our planet, our world, the history of creation, whether or not evolution and science can co-mingle, are those even proper terms to use, and ways that our church and our communities can live in harmony with creation, understanding that Christ did not die for humans alone, that creation and salvation are bigger than you or I, and the decisions that we make today have ramifications for generations after us. A bit about Sister Johnson. She is a distinguished professor at Fordham University in the Department of Theology in New York City and writes specifically on systematic theology, uh, the mysteries surrounding the God that we worship, and, and what is Jesus's meaning for salvation and uh, ecological ethics and the dialogue that exists between science and religion. I'm excited for you to listen. And so let's do this. Professor Johnson, thank you so much for joining us on this week's episode of the Can I Say This at Church podcast. It is a pleasure to have you with us. It's a pleasure to be with you. I have spent uh, over the past few months since we've been talking via email trying to get to know you a bit and researching you a bit and listening to other interviews that you've done. Not everyone listening will have had that experience, though. So can you quickly or, or briefly give us a bit of your history, kind of your upbringing, uh, your faith, and, and what you do now, and then we'll, we'll delve into the topic in, in, at hand. Does that work? Really, yes. So I am raised Catholic, grew up in Brooklyn in a large Irish Catholic family, um, proceeded to teach, got a doctorate, and now I'm teaching at um, the university level. I teach both undergraduate and graduate courses and students at Fordham University, which is in the Bronx. In the Bronx of New York. 
in New York City. That's fantastic. Are you from New York? I am, from Brooklyn. Well, there you go. So, born and raised. Born, raised, educated, and now still live in the city, so New York. And you are, um, the, the faith, or, or the, the, the sect of faith that you are is a Jesuit Catholic, is that correct, or am I wrong? Um, I would not think that that's the way to put it. I'm a Roman Catholic, in other words. Okay. Uh, a, a member of the Catholic Church, um, and I teach at a university that's run by the Jesuit order. Okay. But it's, um, I, how shall I say this, they also are Catholics, um, but I think everyone would just go by the, the overall idea of being a Catholic. And then there are different spiritualities within the Church and so on that you can break it down to. Sure, sure. So your, you, you wrote a book a few years back, and I have fallen in love with that book, predominantly because the faith, the tradition that I grew up as Southern Baptist, we weren't allowed to question science we weren't allowed to question faith, and those two never meet. Not allowed to meet, and they shouldn't even be in the same realm. And, and so the topic of your book, or the title of your book, is Ask the Beasts, Darwin and the God of Love. And, and it's that second part of that title, Darwin and the God of Love. You know, I was taught growing up that we don't mix, you know, Darwin is the antithesis of God. Uh, he's, he's someone that's trying to break apart the faith that we have. And so, can you just tell me a bit about the genesis of how you, or, or the beginnings of what made you want to get into this topic? Because at least in, in the, the, the world that I live in, this is a, not taboo, but a very sticky topic. Surely. Well, let me just give a quick background um, of where I'm coming from, and then a more immediate answer to your question. In the Catholic teaching about human beings, there's always been an emphasis on the fact that faith can work cooperatively with reason. And, and the, the idea behind that is that God, there's only one God who created the whole universe and created us as human beings with intellect, good minds that can figure things out. And if using different scientific methods, people can figure out how this universe works. That is not going to fundamentally be in conflict with the faith that holds that God is the creator of the whole thing, because God is also the creator of human reason and its capacities to understand the universe. So an example that the Catholic Church hasn't always lived up to that idea. Uh, You can point to the Galileo crisis as an example of how the church failed. Mm -hmm. But in recent times, especially in the 20th century and going forward, um, there has been great efforts on the part of the church to, to be in dialogue with scientific discoveries. The Vatican established an observatory, it's called the Vatican Observatory, There are many uh, astronomers who are, in fact, Jesuit priests and other dedicated people in the church studying the heavens, you know, catching, uh, making discoveries that contribute to cosmology and how we understand the earth, uh, the the whole universe works and also how the earth works. So fundamentally, there's there's lack, what you describe as your own upbringing, um, 
has been true to some degree also in the Catholic Church, but there's been this other river running of discovery and welcoming these discoveries because they're done by human reason, which is also created by the same God who created the universe. That's one big piece of background. Faith and reason can be friends rather than enemies. The other background point is that, again, in the 20th century, the Catholic Church began to teach that the Bible should be read using literary methods, as well as, of course, in the, um, under the umbrella of faith, but to understand what the original writers had in mind, what was their context, their historical uh, reasons for writing. And with that approach, the book of Genesis has been interpreted for, you know, going close to um, a century now in the Catholic Church, as written by people who want to teach a religious truth, namely, let's say, Genesis chapter 1, that God created everything that exists, so that creatures whom other religions thought might be gods, for example, the sun, was the sun god Ra in Egypt, no, they're creatures of the one great God. So, reading Genesis in that framework does not set up a conflict with science, let's say in this case evolution, because God created everything that exists is the teaching of Genesis 1, but it doesn't aim to teach how God did it. So if God created the world by empowering the world to create itself, which is really the story of evolution, that doesn't diminish the teaching of Genesis. In fact, it in one way makes it greater that God shared the power of creativity with creatures. So those are two big background pieces in the tradition from which I come. And then the immediate reason for taking up this work for me was the 150th anniversary, the 150th of Darwin's publishing of On the Origin of Species, which put out the idea of evolution in a whole a series of beautifully written and very convincing chapters. Uh, at that, on that year, which was 2009, because the book was published in um, 1859, the dean of Fordham College, where I teach, invited any faculty who wanted to join a reading group and read that book, because everyone thinks they know what it says, and basically I found out we really don't. And we read it throughout the year, couple chapters each month, and it was interdisciplinary discussion, because you had the scientists there, the philosophers, the economists, the historians, and I myself, a theologian, and so on. And I just said, you know, this is so interesting, the way, he de the way Darwin describes the way evolution works. And I just kept seeing, with the eyes of faith, more and more, if you will, glory being given to God through this narrative. And so I decided in the end to write this book, trying to lay out how the two could work together, the story of evolution from science and the faith narrative of God as creator, and how they could in fact increase our understanding of both the world and of God's greatness. I will say, I learned more about the origin of the species from the first three or four chapters of your book than I did in most of my school. Now to be fair... 
uh, they don't really teach a lot of that in high school. And then I went on to go to Liberty University, and they definitely do not teach anything from the origin of the species. Can you, for the benefit of the listeners, just kind of give us some of the highlights of what struck you as you read through Origin of the Species? Because you say in your book that you've read it cover to cover many times, and what you write about it is beautiful. And I'm ashamed to say I haven't read it. What are some of the things that stuck out to you that you could bring to the faith? Well, uh, let me just say two things. One is how everything happens so relationally. Everything is connected with everything else. So the fact that a certain, let me give a concrete example, a bird develops a mutation for a stronger beak, and in that area there are seeds that have tough shells. Well, that bird with the stronger beak is going to be able to eat better than birds with weaker bills, and therefore be stronger in the reproductive area. And that quality will get passed on to the chicks, and they'll pass it on to their chicks. And eventually, there's going to be a lot of birds with strong beaks taking advantage of the strong seeds in the area. So the the sense that um, what happened throughout evolution, it was not a straight line development. It was not you know, uh, automatic. It Everything happened slowly and in relation to everything that was around. Um, some scientists down in Galapagos Island some years ago did some studies about the birds there, and then one year there was a tremendous amount of rainfall when they were doing the study, and a lot of grass sprung up uh, on a dry island. And the birds with the strong beaks weren't as successful that year. It was the birds with the weaker beaks who could eat the grass seed, which was softer, mm-hmm. um, that had better reproductive success. So it just put to my imagination, uh, this whole story of evolution, the way Darwin tells it, that nothing stands alone. Everything is connected. If I, That's a quote from Pope Francis's encyclical Laudato Si on care for our common home that the the atmosphere, the grass, all the vegetation, all the plants, all the animals, plus the water, the air, and the soil, everything is there's a flow of life back and forth throughout the whole thing. And we are so connected. It gave me a tremendous sense of communion or community on this planet. That's one thing that the story of evolution brings forward. Uh, Now, sometimes it's presented simply as, you know, survival of the fittest, as if it's all this struggle. And that, in fact, is how some 19th century philosophers interpreted it. But when you read the book, actually, it's not that it's at all. It is survival of those who can get more food, but the whole thing is relationally happening. It isn't all conflict. Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah, everything's everything's connected. So the sense of of relationality, and the other sense, uh, the second thing that really struck me is the gradualness of this, the length of time that life began on our planet three and a half billion years ago, and then evolved over this process into what Darwin calls um, forms, complex forms most beautiful. So 
I send my students out when we're studying this, just go for a walk around the campus, look at the trees, look at the squirrels, look at whatever else you see. Every single one of these forms, including our human form, have come through this process of slowly, gradually adapting to our environment and being these magnificent creatures that we are at this point, all interrelated. So the the gradualness that develops so much beauty and so much, um, it just it leaves me with a sense of wonder. What would you say to someone that says, well, that's all well and good, Professor Johnson, but if I take away, if I just place the earth in such a position that God just gave his creative juices to it, and now it's able to continue to create on its own, how is that a a worship of a God as opposed to just deism? Because you'll hear that from, from people saying, well, you're taking... You're taking the the uh, supernatural is not the right word. You're taking God out of the creation. You're just making him a a big, huge juggernaut that pushes the ball forward and then it doesn't touch it again. Yeah. Well, that again, uh, I'm glad you brought that up, Seth, because there's a fallacy in the way Christian doctrine has been taught uh, that seems to say creation is what happened in the beginning and leave it at that. But the whole Bible and also the Christian tradition, many of the uh, fathers of the church, the medieval mystics and so on, uh, as well as Christian doctrine, says, no, that is not right, because there is also what we call continuous creation, that God's, the Spirit of God dwells in all things and is empowering evolution, if you want, want to use that word, is empowering the ongoing development of the cosmos with... Um, with infinite patience and power and strength and love. So it's an ongoing presence of God in the natural world as it develops. That's a piece that's been missing, and if I can talk about it in terms of God, it's the Holy Spirit we're talking about here, or otherwise called pneumatology, the Greek word pneuma meaning spirit. The Spirit of God dwells in the world. God is not simply a distant, as you said, juggernaut who started the whole thing and said, you know, go on, have an adventure, and that's it. But accompanies, is with it, is within it, is empowering it. So when Paul says to the Athenians in Acts 17, you know, for in God we live and move and have our being, and he's quoting there some Greek poets, but he's ad- adapting it to the Christian way of envisioning that God is in the world, we are in with God, with God, over over God overall, in with and under the whole entire process. That's also creation. And if I may add a third, there's new creation, which will come at the end. The transforming of everything into a new heaven and a new earth where justice dwells, and this will be um, the transformation of all of creation into the glory of God, as we can read some of this in the book of Revelation. All creatures are singing to the praise of God. So it's the beginning, it's all the way through, and it's the final goal. And if you leave any of that out, you haven't done justice to the fullness of the doctrine of creation. And it's so, if I can put it in a simple word that I really love to use, it's a very God-centered view of the world, or theocentric view of the world that sees God present at every moment. Yeah, and he's he's never 
he's never done. He's constantly making things, I guess, redeemed or or better is a better word, unless I'm taking that out of context, which is t- t- entirely possible. No, you're not. But also, let's not leave out of the picture that everything dies. And this is suffering and pain and death and tragedy in the world. And where is God? That's such a question people ask when this happens. But in terms of the natural world, the suffering of creatures who are the prey for other predators and so on, the whole way it's developed. Well, building on that a bit, everything dies. It's it's part of life. It's 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 appointed. It's going to happen. So what what do we do then with stuff that is created that is horrible, like uh, mutations that cause cancer or things like that? How how can we not point to that and say, well, this is inherently not good. This is this is not the way things should be. Right. Well, there's two things to say there. One is. Uh, that God gave human beings intelligence and ways to deal with that, not perfectly, we're still working it out, but to heal, to be able to deal with um, illness and to know there are plants. I'm thinking of medieval midwives who knew how to, which herbs to give a woman in labor that would ease the pain and so on. Uh, so all the medical discoveries that we're making, how to make um, these illnesses bearable or even curable, that's one thing. So a lot is, it's the same story as before. A lot is in our hands. Yeah. But in addition to that, where the theology is going today, you used the word before, redeem, that God is with every creature in that suffering of cancer, let's say, and is is encouraging and in supporting and empowering them through that. Some theologians want to say God is even suffering with them. Um, that's more of a controversial idea. But what we can't leave out of this story of evolution, if I may use Christian language again, is the cross. That you have Jesus crucified is one with human beings and all creatures in their suffering. Son, though he was, he learned obedience through what he suffered. I'm quoting Hebrews there. Mm. Uh, And he was made like his brothers and sisters in every respect, so that we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness. In other words, the suffering and death of Jesus put into this framework once again shows that God is with those who suffer, with us in our pain and agony. It doesn't take it away. It doesn't... um, make it that people aren't sick or don't die of cancer. But there's a presence of God in and through that that can console and comfort and in the end bring people through with their integrity intact. Yeah, you said something there that I don't want. It's easy to let it slip through. And, and the word you used was Jesus on the cross is, is, is redeeming all creatures. And I feel like that is not the way that the cross is usually preached. It's normally Jesus died for human beings. And I have a feeling this is going to lead to where the title of the book comes from. So what do you mean when you say all creatures, or I guess to, to put it more plainly, the entire planet or the entire universe? What 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 are you getting at right. there? I'm getting at the incarnation right there. The fact that John's gospel, the prologue says, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory full of grace and truth. 
uh, flesh. And it doesn't say that the Word became a human being, but it uses a more general term that the Bible uses both for human beings um, and also even vegetation, if you read Isaiah. So it's this, back to my earlier point, everything happens relationally. We are all connected that the same um, air and soil and water, the same vegetation comes into our bodies and uh, flows through us and all creatures. That when Jesus became among us as Emmanuel, God with us, one of us, came as a member of our race, wasn't just connected with humans alone, but insofar and because we humans are connected with the whole rest of life on our planet, Jesus became a member of the community of life on our planet and sanctified it and showed how that it was sacred and filled with the Spirit of God. And die, when dying comes and comes to every creature, that Jesus has gone down into that darkness and is there in a redemptive way. No creature has to die alone. Everything, then, is filled with the presence of God, even in their dying. And therefore, in the resurrection, Jesus rising from the grave, from the tomb, the bodily resurrection of Jesus pledges a future for all flesh. And if you think of the hymns that we sing at Easter, a lot of that comes through. If you think of some of the statements in the New Testament, dealing with the risen Christ, uh, that also comes through. For example, Colossians 1.15, he is the firstborn of all creation. And later on, he is the firstborn of the dead. So that in him, everything, and that word tapanta, all things, is repeated five times in that, in that passage, that all things find their redemption. So we have focused very much in the West on human redemption and, and redemption from sin. If you look at the Greek Orthodox tradition or the Russian Orthodox, the Eastern pattern of Christianity, they never lost the idea that all creation is redeemed by the cross and resurrection of Christ, that it's a, it's, it's a oneness to the whole world which God created and loves and is redeeming in and through the death of Christ. So that's the... A, a theological, biblical theological theme that I am convinced, and so are others who are working now in this area, that we need to dust off, if you will, bring it back and think it through and preach it and sing about it. Be aware that we aren't the only creatures that God cares about. His presence inside of me, always working up, up and away, lifts my spirit out of shame, crushes the cage I was trapped in for days, unlocks my heart so I can be fully me, my armor falls off, I can breathe, makes me clean, everything I've done, forgiven, born again, new chance at living, there's hope for change, no longer locked up or just stuck the same, makes me more than just a man once knocked over by temptation now got the strength to stand puts his sword in my hand i got a warrior on my side he dominates demons and pulverizes my pride fights against the darkness and turns the tide removes my guilt no longer needs to hide Heartless so where did that happen then and, and i'm where have you uncovered in your in your research and in your learning about this and in your reconnecting with different traditions from other parts of the world where did that happen that the West just created a, 
a, a cliff that we're not allowed to go past when we talk about science or, or creation. How did that? How did that become the status quo? Well, I tell you, but my my assumption, about my research, and again, a number of other theologians uh, would agree with this: that the West really, let's say, lost the view of creation. Um, in our understanding of the cross, with the work of Anselm of Canterbury in the 11th century. Anselm, Anselm of Canterbury um, wrote this wonderful treatise called Cordeus Homo, or Why the God-Man. Have you ever heard of that? I have not. Or read it? I have not. Um, it, it turned out to be hugely influential, hugely influential, insofar as he sets up this question, why did God become a human being and die in order to save us? And, and He could have done it some other way. And his answer was, he had to do it that way, because um, sin is an offense against the honor of God, and the Lord of the manor, if you offend the honor, he's using feudalism there as his model of the universe. It was his own political world he lived in. Uh, you have to... Uh, you have to pay back. You have to make up for that sin. And Jesus was innocent, a good uh, innocent without sin. He shouldn't have had to die, but in the end, he did in order to pay back what we owed. Hmm. And therefore, uh, that 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 was the purpose of the crucifixion. Now, what's interesting about that is that the New Testament does say Jesus died for our sins and so on, but it has multiple other ways of explaining why Jesus died or what the what the crucifixion meant. It isn't only that um, Jesus died to make us children of God, let's say, not just to pay back for sin um, or to um, redeem us in the sense of um, setting us free, to liberate us, as in the biblical sense of the word, redeem, and so on. So what what happened in the West, and this is medieval Europe, the pattern of penance that was coming in in the church, that you had to make do penance for your sins and um, go to confession, became that sacrament in the in the Western medieval church came in at that point, very strong way. It, it all added together to make a coherent pattern of a theology for that time and place. And what happened was that the rest, it was such a powerful argument, so strongly presented, and it was taken in by the church and put into practice sacramentally that other things fell away. You can see this, let me just say, if you do some historical research, um, in the way that um, the, the theology then began in the West, began to leave out the creation. Yeah. So you talk about, and, and you've referenced it a couple times, that, that we're all interdependent of each other, that, that humans impact other things, and, and you know mosquitoes impact the population of something else, which impacts everything else. So how do we balance the razor's edge of being in domination, just because we're smarter than every other species, versus having dominion, as Genesis says that we have? How do we balance that razor's edge wisely, or I guess ecologically? Right. So, uh, two things, again, let me just say, uh, we could look at here. One is uh, what we mean by dominion. 
And by we, I mean what Genesis means by dominion. An awful lot of work has been done on that. It was taken for granted, starting again in late medieval Europe, that that meant domination. But in the Genesis text itself, biblical scholars show us that the word dominion comes from a a practice of the royal court. That if a king had a very large territory and couldn't get to every place, he would send an ambassador, if you will, and that ambassador would rule in the king's name, and that ambassador had dominion over that area. So he was a representative, and his goal, his purpose, was to enforce the will of the king or to make sure that what the king wanted was being done. Now, in Genesis... That's that's the idea behind dominion, and God has just created the world day by day and seen that everything is good, and then creates the human couple in the divine image and likeness and says, have dominion. In other words, be my representative here and see that my will is done. And what is the will of God for the rest of the creatures? Already in Genesis it says, be fruitful and multiply Fill the earth, you know, telling each creature when he uh, creates them to go off and multiply and so on. So in other words, to flourish. And human beings um, are supposed to oversee that. And in Genesis chapter 2, the the original creature is put in the garden and given the instruction to till and keep it. And so that's another way of looking at what dominion is, as opposed to um, use it and benefit from it, but also keep it. In other words, protect it, guard it, allow it to be itself and to flourish and to give God glory. So it doesn't mean dominion, despite what the development has been the last 500 years, does not mean you can go out and exploit to the point of ruining nature, let alone do do things that make other creatures go extinct. It, it just simply... That is such a wrong understanding of what dominion means. Um, So that's one thing, the biblical notion of dominion. But the other thing I want to say, and this is an interesting thought experiment, that saying we have dominion in a way uh, that we're above everything else ignores the fact, again, of how interdependent we all are. And let me give the example of trees. Um, Trees existed on this earth millions of years before humans did. And as you know, they take in carbon dioxide, and in the light of the sun, they create oxygen, and that's their waste product, you might say. Um, They created an atmosphere, green plants did, on this planet where humans then, or before us, other mammals, could come and breathe, okay, and, and have an atmosphere. Now take humans away from this earth, Trees would do very fine without us. Take trees away from this earth, and we don't have any more atmosphere. I'm I'm exaggerating there, but, you know, what is being increasingly difficult to have oxygen. Mm -hmm. And so who needs who more? (laughs) It's just a a good thought expression. And it sort of shocks you into realizing how interdependent we are. And so we set ourselves up as king of the hill and prance around and we have dominion. And everything else right now, as you well know, is in great distress. Species going extinct at a great rate, uh, which is a disaster. Yeah. To lose all 
all this creation disappearing. Um, and it's happening out because of human activity. Uh, the point is, we we are responsible. We are brothers and sisters of all these creatures, and we are responsible to see that it thrives, and that's what dominion means. Mm. Yeah, well, I will say it's humbling. When you put it that way, there's no way to say I'm more important than a tree, which is extremely humbling, because I, I, you're not wrong, but I also feel like I have to be more important than a tree, but that's probably my pride well, speaking. Saying, but let me get it straight. I'm not saying you're not more important than a tree. There, there's powers in the human person, the, the human soul, the mind and will, the, the tremendous capacity of human beings uh, that certainly makes us different. I'm not saying we're all equal, mm-hmm. but I'm not saying, but I'm also saying we're interdependent. How? Because for all our great gifts, human beings could not exist without the other creatures, including trees. Yeah. That's, that was my yeah, point. No, yeah, no, I'm with you. How would you describe a... Well, here's something I've realized over, over the past five or six years, that I existed in a way of thinking that was dualistic, and I didn't know that that was a term until I realized that I was either black or white. I was either pro-abortion or not pro-abortion. I was either creationist, like Ken Ham and his creed, or I was an evolutionist. And I've come to realize that there is a very happy middle, and I find most often that Jesus is is mixed and intertwined in that middle, which is which is very heartening. So how would you describe a, a relationship with faith and science in a non-dualistic way? Well, the way that it works for me is to to put God at the center and to have faith in God who creates, redeems, sanctifies, and loves this world and will bring it to fulfillment. Um, That, to me, is primary. And when science comes along with different discoveries, you know, about our DNA or about some magnificent galaxy that's just been discovered or all this wonder, wonder in the world, yeah, to me, it just endorses the magnificence of God's creative ways in the world without, uh, because what I don't believe in believing in God, that I don't believe that um, that we have a narrative of the precise history and science of how God did everything. So science fills in that gap. So I see it going together pretty hand in hand. Nice. Yeah. I have I have two final final questions that I'd like to end with and the first is you talk about the entangled bank getting back to Darwin and I want to find it I want to find where I wrote down oh my where is it at here it is so you say in your in your book and I can't remember what chapter that the inner secret of the entangled bank and that being Darwin's entangled bank is the dwelling of God's spirit within it. So can you talk a bit about what the, what Darwin means when he says entangled bank, and then what you mean on how we can see God in that? Yeah, Darwin um, invited his readers to, at the end of On the Origin of Species, one of the last paragraphs, to look at an entangled bank with beautiful bushes, with birds twittering around, with worms in the dirt underneath, with the little stream going past it, and ponder how all these wonders came to be through this long process of evolution. And, um, and just look at the interconnection of it all and sort of be 
in wonder at it. Um, so an entangled bank, I say at the beginning of my book, Ask the Beasts, you know, think of your own entangled bank, whether it's a city park or even a pot of flowers on the windowsill or uh, a beach or wherever you have encountered nature and different aspects of that particular scene all working together to create something, as he puts it, magnificent um, and grand, the grandeur in this view of life, as he puts it. Um, so first of all, like to wake up our eyes, our senses, our spirits, to sensitize ourselves to the, the natural world around us, which as we rush around and look at our cell phones all day, more and more people are ignoring. Um, so that's, that's the entangled bank. It's just a piece of nature somewhere, maybe outside your window, where different things are interacting, whether you're looking at them or not, but become aware. Uh, I love the line of, along those lines, Louis Agassiz, who was a 19th century scientist, and he said in one of his writings, I spent the summer traveling. I got halfway across my backyard. <laughs> and the idea there is there's so much wonder, even in your backyard, that you should just stop and look and, and get a hold of how nature is moving on in this interrelated um, giving and taking kind of way and, and be contemplating it, be, be amazed at it, be quiet, and let it speak to you, you know. Um, so that's that. And I go back then with that kind of view of nature on our planet uh, with the notion none of this would be here if it were not for the creative power of God dwelling in it. Um, I belong in the Catholic Church. We say the Nicene Creed every Sunday at Mass. And when we get to the part about the Holy Spirit, we say we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life. And that in Latin, which I also know, vivifi contem is life giver, give, giving of life. And so the vivifier would be another way to translate that. It's the, it's the touch of the Spirit of God that creates all this life, enables its interaction, um, gives it the sense of communion and potential uh, as it goes forward, and its beauty and its grandeur. And when it's miserable, is still there because the misery is part of how it goes forward. Now, as Darwin wrote, when creatures die, they die in each other's life. Uh, and by that he means every creature that dies by being eaten by someone else is giving life to another. Um, if you die and go back into the earth, you fertilize it, and then that lets something else grow that gives life to another. So there's an endless cycling of life and death, and God is in the middle of that, not just on the good parts, but also in the bad parts, if you want to call it that. Yeah. And so to see the Spirit of God in the, in the natural world, in the entangled bank, makes the natural world a place of encounter with God. It makes it a place where God is present, where one can speak with God, hear God's word. And I would say anybody who has had an experience of God in nature would know this, and I'm just putting language to that. Yeah, no, I would agree. I mean, that's that's what people do, you know, when they go and walk the Camino or go up in the, um, I'm down here in Central Virginia, and there's the Appalachian Parkway, and people will spend time right. hiking and, and connecting yeah. with with God. Right. It What you just said reminds me a lot of, and I wrote down three quotes from your book, the three that hit me the most, and 
and you wrote one that says ecological conversion means falling in love with the earth as an inherently valuable living community in which we participate. And then you go on to say, um, we participated and we cherish it the way that God cherishes us with an unconditional love. What would you then say to my kids' generations, the people that were teaching to cherish the planet in this way and to not continue to destroy something that is beautiful and something that Christ died for as much so as we did. So what would you say to the next generation of Christians, I guess the people that you teach now, as something or a few things that we can proactively do or or on, something that can change, something we can do better? Right. Well, besides the teaching of this, which of course it has to get into the, the churches and into the um, way that people read the Bible, because the Bible is very ecologically sensitive. It has to get into the, what we teach them about the meaning of life. Okay, so once you know all of that happens, then there are ways of um, being proactive. Uh, I am just to give you the example of the children who were very upset uh, when they learned about tuna fish um, fishing by the great nets that leave the ocean floor a desert and bring up all this other uh, life from the sea and then let it die because all they want is the tuna out of there. And they started this um, campaign, a bunch of school children in our country, to stop using these kinds of nets, to put in escape hatches, let's say, for octopus and dolphins and all, to get out of the nets and only to get the tuna. And now when you buy tuna fish, if you look on the can, there's this little fish in the corner that says, you know, sustainably fished or fished without these nets. Um, in other words, they they latched on to one particular creature, and one way that harvesting that creature was ruining the whole ecological system in which it lived and brought so much um, energy to this that that fishing changed its pattern. Uh, the same thing happened with McDonald's and using styrofoam because of it not, it's not renewable, it's not recyclable. Um, it uses chemicals to be created and so on. So now everything is cardboard back to paper. Um, yeah. There are things, you're talking about children. There are, there are things that children, there's groups called Kids for the Earth. Um, there's ways of, of, that they can get involved in, in a way appropriate to their age of um, caring for another creature together um, that would then, of course, inculcate terrific habits as they grow up to be responsible citizens on this earth. Mm. Yeah, no, that's good, and that's hard. That's, and I can only see it being more hard as the political culture and the, and the landscape that we live in gets gets even more vitriol- right. vitriolic right. as we even, go. Even no, you're absolutely right. But I mean, to say, let's ride our bikes instead of taking the car, you know, um, there's just plenty of ways with kids that you can do things that make, that tap into their ecological sensitivity. You know, most children love little animals and the rest of nature and so on. And, and to say, we have to take care of this, you know, so inculcate those kinds of habits. I agree that it's hard, um, but it's certainly worth doing if we're going to have a living, healthy planet to the seventh generation, 
Do you know that phrase, the seventh generation? It's, it comes from the Native Americans. They make a decision. Keep in mind how this will affect your progeny to the seventh generation. I had not heard that, but I like it. Yeah. I like it very much. I like it very much. So it's not just like what's convenient for us today, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> or even for your children, but their children and their ch- children's children. And try to make this earth you know, stay as beautiful and healthy and filled with life as it was when we were born. Although, frankly, it's not going to be because we're losing species at a very rapid rate. Yeah. yeah. But we can slow that down. Yeah. That that idea of of acting in a way that seven generations from now, I think, is is a perfect way to end this conversation of ecology and Christ reconciling all things science and faith intermingling in a way that are not threatening. And so I would implore everyone listening, go out and, and, and get the book. It is it is a very good book and, and involve in the conversation. And so, uh, Professor Johnson, for those that want to engage in a conversation this way in their local communities, what are some of the avenues that you would point them to in closing? I would say see if their local church has anything along these lines. Some churches are beginning to have an ecological committee, something like this. Uh, look in their town. You know, is there a river or a park that needs refreshing and form a committee or join one that can do this uh, clean up and fixing what's local? I would say very much start locally, you know. Many libraries now, town libraries, are having reading groups around this subject, out of which sometimes action committees can form. Um, I say the first thing I would suggest is really look locally, what's around, and connect up your energies with that going forward. Professor Johnson, thank you again for your time today. I enjoyed it immensely. I wish you could have seen the amount of smiles that you put on my face as we, as we spoke. I like talking about science. I like talking about Jesus, and, and it's not often that I get to do both at the same time. So I, I appreciate it. Yeah, well, it was a great pleasure speaking with you, Seth. It really was. Anticipation, a proclamation, a king to come, the work of sin undone. Really? Who could help me? Who could rescue me? My life's a mess that you wouldn't believe. I don't trust anyone. The music featured, uh, the music and spoken word that you heard featured today on the episode is from Artist MD, from the most recent work, The History Project. You can connect with Artist MD on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and you will find all those links in the show notes, as well as the tracks from today's episode will be listed in our Spotify playlist. I hope that you enjoy the music as much as I do. Thank you all for listening. Thank you for your engagement. I want to ask you to, if you didn't do it at the beginning, do it now. Go to iTunes, rank the show. That is the best way that you can help the conversations that are happening here bubble up on the internet so that more people can interact with them. On top of that, share the show. Share it with your family, your friends, Facebook, social media. Whatever avenue you choose is a great avenue. And lastly, 
I would also ask if you feel so led to become a patron at patreon.com slash can I say this at church. You'll also find a link to that on the website, can I say this at church.com. I am very grateful for those of you that have taken the time and your your money to do so. I can't tell you how appreciative I am of your willingness to become part of the community that is the Can I Say This at Church podcast. I'll talk to you next week. I hate the man inside of me. Who was it I was meant to be? Ah, he's under lock and key. Not just a padlock that you can pop, but a demon who's screaming at me, stop.